This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Norman A. Mark. Uh, I'm in the history department here at Stanford and a senior fellow uh, at IIS. And it's my honor today uh, to introduce uh, Ambassador, uh, Professor, Dr. Thomas W. Simons, Jr., for the last of his series of pain lectures on Islam in a globalizing uh, world. I first met uh, Tom Simons over 30 years ago in Warsaw, where he and his quite wonderful wife Peggy fed me at their table and American cigarettes from the embassy. And we've been fast friends ever since, uh, talking history and politics and sharing our respective personal and professional lives. And this even after we quit smoking. In fact, we were such good friends that he could say to me this morning, Norman, keep the damned introduction short. Uh, the lecture is going to be the longest. So I will do that. I will keep it short. I promised. Besides, earlier introducers have talked about Tom's 35-year uh, long uh, career in the Foreign Service, his distinguished ambassadorships, and his accomplishments both as a scholar and as a diplomat. But I want to mention at least his three-plus years of service uh, that he has put in here at Stanford as consulting professor of history. First and most important, he has taught hundreds of our undergraduates, sharing with them the intersection of the world uh, of foreign policy making with that of the world of learning. In fact, I see a couple of our students here in the audience today, which is a real tribute to him since they're in the middle of exams. Long before September 11th, he taught courses on political Islam and on the countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran, that are very much on our minds uh, today. He has counseled students about serving the public good and international welfare uh, through government. And his forthright, honest, and inquiring approach to the problems of American foreign policy has inspired many Stanford young people to pursue a public service. From him, our students have learned lessons about the way diplomacy and historical understanding can serve the interests of the country and of the world. And I want to thank him on behalf uh, of his students and colleagues who will miss him terribly when he moves back east. In fact, he's already moved back. It's truly a unique service he was able to perform here at Stanford, and I hope he comes back soon uh, to the classroom, whether here or someplace else, preferably here. The lecture today is entitled Political and Other Islams in IT-Led Globalization, Thomas W. Simons, Jr. Well, I'd like to thank, <clears throat> once again, uh, many of you will have heard it for the fourth time. I'd like to thank IIS for having me. 
uh, I'd like to thank all of you for being here. I'd especially like to thank my dear friend, uh, Norman Neymark. You can tell how he got to be a professor. I mean, that was sort of a lot better than reality uh, <laughs> there. But uh, my dear friend, for so many years, uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased that uh, his bride and our colleague, is, uh, Catherine, is uh, here with us also. Uh, dear friend for so many years, my dear colleague for these four. Uh, it, these four years at Stanford will have been uh, one of the high points of my life, uh, and I do intend to be back uh, somehow. Um, but I did tell him to keep it short because we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, in the lecture before last, uh, we followed the Islamic world through the challenge of what I call globalization by blood uh, and iron. Uh, in that phase, uh, in the century and a half from the early 19th century to around 1970, uh, Muslims uh, grappled really with how to relate to a Europe that increasingly meant machine-driven economies powered by coal, and producing iron and then steel. Uh, it meant city-driven societies, and it meant power wielded by national states. And in the last lecture, we paused around 1970 to consider the origins of the radical political Islamism, which was emerging about that time. Uh, and I tried to illuminate it by comparison to the political radicalism which had suffused the European East, and particularly Russia, uh, a century before, in the, the, the period starting in 1870. And what I think we found was that both areas, uh, the Islamic world, especially the, the old Islamic heartlands, uh, Syria, Egypt, uh, Iraq, uh, and uh, Russia a century previously had had exploding and ever younger populations. They had had burgeoning cities, and they'd had expanding, vastly expanding education. And we found in both places uh, newly educated uh, young men and women, young men and women in Russia, I see they're just appearing uh, in the Islamic world as well, uh, but young men and women from the country uh, or from small towns uh, who were often the first of their families to be educated and who were piling up in expanding but decaying cities, cities that were outstripping their infrastructure uh, without serious hope uh, of jobs or dignity. And we found in both places uh, these young men and women adopting political ideologies, radical political ideologies that would take them above and beyond the miseries and constrictions of the present and promise total solutions uh, for the future. In Russia, that ideology was radical socialism. The radical socialism that came to power uh, in 1917 and that we have been dealing with uh, through most of the rest of that last, what is now the last century. Uh, in the Arab world around 1970, 
That ideology was the old uh, Islamic utopia of a return to the, to the seventh century, a return to origins, a return to the purity and unity of the original ummah, the community of believers, uh, a return to the unity of religion and politics, which had characterized those, that original uh, period. Now, this utopia had always been present uh, in Islamic discourse from the 17th, 7th century on, um, but now it, it had usually been marginal. It had usually not been dominant. It had usually been something appealing to Bedouins, the small people in the cities. Now, around 1970, it expanded uh, into the spreading ideological vacuum, uh, which was wrought uh, by the disillusionments of the post-colonial Islamic world. Uh, State-led development uh, had not brought prosperity. Uh, Israel had not been defeated by Arab nationalism, the Arab kind of Arab nationalism associated uh, with uh, Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser. On the contrary, Arab nationalism had been devastatingly defeated itself by Israel in the Six Days War of 1967. And finally, the secularist radicalism of the PLO had been crushed and expelled from Jordan by King Hussein in 1970, the very year that Nasser himself had died. And as we left the story at that point, uh, not only were you dealing with this disillusionment and the spread of this utopian uh, political Islam, as it has come to be called, uh, but the world, including its Islamic component, uh, were on the verge of what we now see uh, is a new era. Because globalization, the old globalization that had been led by uh, coal and steel and petroleum was now giving way uh, to globalization led by information technology. Uh, production of things was becoming less important for growth than production of knowledge. And year by year, the premium was rising on mobility on openness, on transparency, on the things required to produce in these new technological conditions. And that was true not only in the economy, but also in society and in politics. Now, of course, this kind of IT-led globalization has been a worldwide phenomenon. And naturally, it's, been, uh, it's come first and been most pronounced in technologically uh, the most advanced societies like ours. There, at the cutting edge of the transformation, it has produced a slowly accelerating breakdown of, the, of old stabilities, of a lot of the stabilities that uh, many of us in this, many of you in the audience and I myself uh, grew up with, including some stabilities which were actually not so old uh, at all. And here I'm thinking uh, of the post-war era of big capital, uh, big labor, and growing middle classes from which we all benefited. In that era of the 50s and 60s, when I grew up, politics in most Western countries was mainly about how to divide up an expanding economic pie. That was what you argued about in politics. 
And now these structures uh, that developed in the post-war era and that we thought would last forever, uh, and the verities that clustered around them were starting to break down, starting to dissolve. Uh, economies and societies, people started to go on the move again uh, in the 60s and 70s. And now, in this beginning then to compete for political leadership, you could no longer do it just on the basis of interests. Uh, you had to build coalitions issue by issue, and you had to appeal to shifting segments of the electorate. And the only way really to do that uh, was to appeal to them on the basis of values. The only way to build those coalitions was on the basis of values. And that's how poor Henry Kissinger, uh, appealing for foreign policy built on the basis of interest, uh, hit the beach just as the wave had gone out. Uh, and that's why Ronald Reagan, uh, bizarre as he looked at the time, became probably the most successful American politician of the last half of the century. Uh, now this turn to values was a general phenomenon, uh, but it included the re-entry of religion uh, into the political arena. Uh, religion came up from the private sphere to which it had been consigned uh, during the liberal era, and it came back from the lumber room of history to which it had been consigned by most liberals. And this return of religion to the political arena uh, was happening in Judaism as well as in Christianity, and it happened in the Islamic world as well. So that is the general context in which uh, we all share. But in the Islamic world, you got special effects because both the sitting post-colonial regimes, the regimes that had inherited these territorial states from the colonizers and their emerging oppositions uh, uh, in the burgeoning younger generation now provided themselves with new technologies. That was the most basic effect of this kind of new kind of globalization, uh, new equipment. Nasser had gotten famous for his control of the radio, the voice of the Arabs with its constituencies far outside Egypt. Now these regimes took over and enhanced their control of television. Uh, from Paris, well, the opposition did the same thing. From Paris, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, uh, spread his pronouncements and sermons against the Shah, against the monarchy, by audio cassette, uh, using new technologies for political opposition, even in the name of this seventh century utopia uh, uh, that was coming into favor. And both sides in the swelling civil war among Muslims upgraded their armaments. They got better bombs and they got better guns. And I think it's important to realize uh, as we look back that this was a civil war mainly among Muslims. It really was Muslim against Muslim. Uh, we in the West thought that the mounting violence was directed mainly at the Israelis and at us. What we remember is the slaughter of the Israeli athletes at Munich in 1972. We remember the old man, the old Jewish man, heaved in his wheelchair uh, over the side of the Achille Laura. And of course we remember the uh, hostages in Tehran. 
uh, Abu Nidal and Carlos the Jackal uh, were as 70s to us as bell-bottoms and afros. But the truth was that the main protagonists in this war were Muslims. The fact was sometimes masked by the fact that many of them were secularists, were not Islamists. I mean, that's especially true of the PLO, uh, Palestinians in general. Abu Nidal and Carlos were not particularly uh, Islamic. Uh, they were mainly used by states against other states, by Gaddafi, and they're in the slammer now because the states kind of gave them up in the end. But the point is that it was becoming harder and harder as the years passed to blame all the ills of the Islamic world on the now departed colonizers. And the Americans and the Israelis really didn't fill the gap, as vic uh, the gap if you're looking for victimizers uh, completely or perfectly. So the beady gaze of the Islamic world's victims, those who felt oppressed and abandoned uh, and hurt, the, the hot or cold gaze of the Islamic world's victims now started to turn slowly but inexorably toward their own rulers, who were Muslims. Now, we have seen in previous lectures, uh, and there's, uh, there are many faithful people here uh, who've heard it, uh, how as the European challenge uh, mounted in the 19th century, uh, the Islamic world had produced uh, three main varieties of responders. First were the top-down modernizers, uh, rulers who sought to adopt Western techniques in order to save the essential, uh, professionals and intellectuals who sought to adapt Islam to the new Western values that they were increasingly living by, and you had resistors, people who rejected the whole thing uh, in the name uh, of Islam and especially of some original uh, purity of Islam. All of them spoke Islamic language, but all of them were modern compared to the traditionalists who'd come before. Now, the post-colonial period was very hard on the first two categories. Uh, uh, the modernizers and the adaptationists were very badly battered in the first decades after independence. And this was particularly true under the Republican nationalist regime uh, with their state-led development programs, uh, which I described previously. The large landowners who had been uh, sort of the muscle behind a lot of the anti-colonial uh, nationalism were practically destroyed by land reform uh, in many places. The professionals and the intellectuals who had spearheaded uh, adaptationism, the effort to adapt Islam uh, to uh, modern values that were associated with Europe, they were being swamped by the rural exodus into these vastly expanded uh, educational systems. And what capitalists remain uh, in the Islamic world uh, after the states had taken over the economy and after the foreigners among the capitalists had immigrated and even native people. Most Palestinian capitalists, of course, live outside Palestine. Uh, what capitalists remained were strapped, really, to the chariot wheel 
of import substitution uh, industrialization led by states. They became cronies of the ruling uh, groups almost by definition. Uh, they produced in small protected markets to create rents for the state to spend on its army and on its bureaucracy. So the basis of the, the traditional bases of modernization in the Islamic world had shrunk. And in addition to this contraction, you then got a curious reversal. Because states, having shrunk down and subordinated their civil societies, because that was what went on in those first post-colonial decades, states more and more hunkered down on their armies and on their police forces. Lacking a civil society to support them, they hunkered down on the structures of force that were available to them. And in anemic civil societies, the role of the erstwhile modernizers and adaptationists in resisting power was increasingly assumed by Islamists. In other words, the people who had been the third wheel uh, in the pre-colonial era entered the center. So long as the main enemy was the colonial state, Islamists had remained on the margins. Uh, in the Islamic world. And now they came into the center because they proved in struggle that they were now the most active and effective opponents of the inept and corrupt post-colonial state. And now that politics were bipolar, in other words, now that you had just states and Islamists with very little in between, the war between them that broke out around 1970 was really savage on both sides. The Iranian secret police of the Shah's last decade, the Sabak, was savage. And so were the victorious uh, Islamic, so was the victorious Islamic revolution after 1979. The executioners of Ayatollah Khalkhali's uh, revolutionary tribunal. In Egypt, uh, having failed once in 1974, the Islamists finally assassinated uh, Nasser's successor Sadat, Anwar Sadat, in 1981. And they paid a price in thousands and thousands of dead. And when Hafez al-Assad's Syrian army uh, retook uh, the city of Hama uh, from a Sunni insurrection in 1982, the dead numbered maybe 30,000. And in the 1990s, when the Algerian government suppressed uh, the Islamists who were sure to win uh, the country's first national elections, uh, that triggered a, a civil war, years of massacre, whole villages with their throats cut in the night, tens of thousands of people dead. This was a savage civil war. But it was not only a war, uh, it also as the years went on, became a long and complex negotiation. Because in order to fight the war, the regimes moved to Islamize themselves uh, in, the, in the countries, and it was most countries where the Islamists did not succeed in overthrowing power. Power Islamized itself in order to resist, uh, to co-opt, and to isolate the Islamist enemy. In Jordan, 
King Hussein had always cultivated the Muslim Brotherhood, the organization, the Islamist organization founded, you remember, in 1928 by Hassan al-Banna. He did that as a counterweight to Nasser. But now Nasser's successor, Sadat, uh, uh, went down the same path. Now, he called himself the believer president, like Zia al-Huq. He had a little bruise in his forehead from uh, praying uh, so intensively uh, uh, day and night. The media took to showing Sadat in his jalabiyya, the long white uh, garment, the long white cotton garment uh, associated with ordinary Muslims, showing him doing Islamic things. Now, the Islamists killed him anyway, and they killed him as Pharaoh. The man who killed him was the fine old Egyptian name of Istanbuli, uh, uh, shouted as he did so, I am not afraid of Pharaoh. But over the decade, this kind of opening to Islam and to its symbolism really brought Islam more and more into mainstream political discourse. You had leaders, Gaddafi in Egypt, uh, Jafar al-Numeri in Sudan, the Pakistan's dictator, military dictator, Zia al-Huq, uh, after 1977, all introduced extensive Islamization uh, in laws and institutions. Now, programs like these were not always successful, uh, not least because the leaders had a penchant for putting themselves above the Sharia that they were ostensibly introducing. They were the ones who were determining, they tried to determine what was Islamic and not Islamic. And in the end, they were no more successful in that, in arrogating religious authority to themselves than Caliph al-Mahmoun had been, you remember, uh, in the ninth century. And by the 1980s, the Islamists, whom Zia al-Haq brought into the Pakistani cabinet, uh, were declaring that his martial law was un-Islamic and were joining the struggle for a return to democracy in Pakistan. In one country, uh, it will interest you to hear, the struggle of radical Islamists with government ended in something new. Uh, and that country was Iran. Uh, when he was in exile in Iraq before the revolution, before he was kicked out of Iraq and went to Paris, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, drawing on Iran's Shia tradition and looking toward uh, Iran's uh, unique quasi-constituted uh, ulama, the nearest thing in the Islamic world to a clergy, had set forth the concept of rule uh, of the state uh, by the juris consul, the faqih, who could be either a single person uh, or a group. This valayat de faqih ruled by clerics or scholars. And in the decade after the revolution, uh, this was then built into Iran's highly complicated constitutional structure, where it remains lodged today. And then just before his death in 1989, Khomeini took the process a step further uh, and actually in some ways uh, reversed it. Uh, he ruled that in case of need, the interest of the state and nation supersede and have priority over the Sharia itself. The state takes priority, the interest of the state takes priority uh, over the Sharia. And really there could be no clearer case of Islamism's function 
as a validator of the nation state uh, in the Islamic world. Now, it's true, it's likely that uh, Iran's special Shia character, which got reinforced then in the bitter war with Iraq, which went on through the whole 1980s, uh, is going to make it impossible to replicate this particular legitimation, the religious legitimation of the, of the nation state uh, in other Islamic societies. But the case is at least proof that Islamic legitimation for the modern state can be found, that you can do it. And it has at least allowed Iran uh, to weather the post-charismatic period, the post-Khomeini period, uh, with the democratic elements of its constitution still uh, intact. So that was one, uh, one uh, fruit of this civil war, <laughs> the Islamization <clears throat> of states, uh, even where uh, Islamists did not take over states or overthrow uh, the sitting regime. But it was also a two-way street. Because as the regimes Islamized, the Islamic radicals also started making accommodations. Some of them entered the political systems of their country, not something that many of us uh, outside have really been aware of. But since the late 1970s, Islamic activist leaders have obtained cabinet positions, not just in Iran and Pakistan, but also in Sudan, in Jordan, in Turkey, uh, in Kuwait, in Yemen, and in Malaysia. Uh, in most of these countries, and also in Egypt, Islamists have become the leading opposition in the political system. Islamists participated in elections in Egypt, in Algeria and Tunisia, in Kuwait, and in Yemen. In Tunisia, they took 40% of the city vote. Uh, in Algeria, they took 64% of the vote in Algiers, the capital, and over 70% in Algeria's other town. And in fact, they, took, they, they were t getting such votes that the government then shut down the electoral system before you had the national election. In Turkey, uh, they led a government for the first time in the 45-year history of the Turkish Republic until the military forced them out. So their entry into the system was very tentative on both sides, very back and forth. And there was no inevitability about it, but there really was an entry of these Islamists into the political system. Other Islamists turned uh, to community action on behalf of the faith uh, rather than to politics. This was the second great uh, uh, response uh, from their side. More and more of them decided that what was important was to affirm Islamic cultural identity rather than to seize or destroy political power. For these Islamists, the, struggle, the locus of struggle shifted from the political arena to the family, to the community, to the school, to the hospital. Uh, in Palestine, the Muslim Brotherhood, the local version of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, was so community-oriented, in fact, that when the first intifada started in December of 1987, uh, it, uh, it hived off, it split. Uh, the people who wanted to be more political and more activist uh, went off and created the more radical Hamas. Uh, elsewhere, uh, however, also in Egypt, for instance, 
<laughs> most Muslim brothers uh, operated carefully uh, as community activists, mainly as community activists, and not in politics. In Pakistan, the largest Islamic organization, I may have mentioned it in response to a question, is not a party at all. But the Tablighi Jamaat, which is a missionary organization <coughs> that focuses entirely on reshaping, <coughs> excuse me, on reshaping individual lives, on cultivating personal piety, and on right conduct. The chief of army staff once told me they were particularly strong among Air Force wives. I'm not sure why that should be true. Now, of course, this turn from politics to community, from power to cultural identity, can cut a number of ways. First of all, it produces a huge new stress on form and conduct associated with Islam, on, on what uh, has been called, what I mentioned in previous lectures, on orthopraxy as distinguished from the orthodoxy, uh, the, the, the insistence on the right ideas. Uh, in Islam, you have very strong insistence on right conduct, right ritual, right dress. And this received a whole new boost uh, by, from this turn toward community action. Uh, these new uplifters tended to see the center of gravity of public and private discourse in a fairly narrow range of Shariat law uh, that emphasizes personal behavior and ritual. Uh, in the subcontinent, uh, this is associated with the reformist Deoband school, uh, D-E-O-B-A-N-D, after the city north of Delhi, uh, where the main uh, madrasa was founded in 1865. It was reformist, it was a purifying uh, school, uh, and has been very strong in North India uh, ever since. Uh, the Afghan Taliban uh, trained in Deobandi madrasas. Uh, and even compared to other Deobandi, the Taliban were extreme in the, their ritualistic rigor, uh, in their struggle against popular customs uh, and ceremonies like uh, uh, visiting shrines, uh, in their hostility to Shia, uh, and in their enforcement of female seclusion. Uh, and female dress restriction. But the stress on orthopraxy uh, really inhabits the old movement, uh, the whole movement. Taliban are an extreme example of a larger uh, phenomenon. Second, the shift from politics to community can give a new salience to ethnicity. Uh, I'm going to be a little tentative here because I'm not sure I actually understand all the issues or what's going on. But uh, I just wanted to share with you, uh, to identify for you, this problem, which is uh, very actual, for instance, in Pakistan over these last couple of days. Because we have seen how Islam has usually respected ethnicity, even while trying to supersede it. I mean, that was my original definition of globalization under Islam, trying to get above the kinship group and the family. We've also seen how Islamists, in practice, uh, work within the framework of the territorial state that they wish to supersede in principle. But once cultural identity replaces uh, political power as the main issue, in other words, this trend from, from power to community as the main focus uh, of activity in public, it becomes more and more tempting 
to define cultural identity in ethnic terms uh, and to make that the basis for nationality. In other words, to fill up these territorial states with national identities defined in ethnic terms. Now, it wouldn't be the first place in the world, ladies and gentlemen, uh, where that happened. Uh, it, it is a tendency that is counter to Islam's original globalizing impulse, but it is at work uh, in the world, in the Islamic world today. For increasing numbers of Muslims, uh, Islam functions first of all as a badge of ethno-national identity, distinguishing true citizens from false citizens, real members of the national community from unreal members of the national community. And of course, not so long ago, Englishmen almost had to be Protestants. And uh, probably up into our own day, Norman can testify with me, Poles had to be Roman Catholic. So the phenomenon is not just uh, Islamic. But in the Islamic world, this giving an ethnic content defined by Islam to nationality, uh, it gives an exclusivity to citizenship which is historically novel. And it can also lead to, to sharper and more violent Sunni-Shia rivalry. I mean, even before the attack on the Christian church in Islamabad, you were having Shia doctors gunned down uh, in Karachi. Uh, and it can also lead to self-consciously and explicitly anti-Jewish and anti-Christian activities uh, on a scale that would also be quite new uh, in Islam and very dangerous. So those are those two effects. First, new, whole new, uh, huge new stress on orthopraxy. Second, an ethnicization uh, of politics. And third and finally, it, it is also possible that this turn from Islamist politics to Islamic community action is tactical. I mean, it can also be a withdrawal from politics under pressure from the regimes in order to recoup, to rebuild, uh, to lay or extend the basis for later and stronger re-entry. That's certainly the nightmare of Egyptians, for instance, who watch the spreading welfare activities of the Muslim Brotherhood, and then who suddenly notice that private mosques in the country outnumber state-controlled mosques by 40,000 to 6,000. And that has happened uh, really within a decade and a half. It's certainly the nightmare of Turks who see the networks of Islamist schools and charities ready at any moment to morph into political infrastructure for whatever version of the Islamist party is currently uh, operating. They keep banning it and it keeps popping up under another name. But it's also, so there's a, there's a suspicion that all of, that this move to community from power struggle is tactical and that they'll just be back. But uh, I won't say be of good cheer, but I would like to point out to you that there are other global trends underway which work against that. And there, those trends, uh, by the 1980s, those trends were becoming very powerful. And they were of two kinds. First of all, the Cold War was winding down. By the 1980s, the Cold War was winding down. And this made it harder and harder for sitting Muslim regimes to extract rents from the Cold War protagonists 
uh, in return for their support or acquiescence. Now, of course, the Soviet side kind of first shrank and then disappeared entirely uh, at the turn of the 1990s. But as communism shrank, the U.S. and its allies had less and less interest in paying high prices uh, for the partnership of Muslim regimes, except in the Arab-Israeli context. There, it continued to be worthwhile to pay the price, but otherwise, less and less. And this was especially true uh, when it came to dictatorship. What had been tolerated for the good of the cause during the Cold War was harder to tolerate once it wound down. And in the 1990s, with communism gone entirely, uh, democracy uh, became the global flavor of the month uh, in politics. Uh, and the flavor of the month almost every month, rather than just every other month or intermittently, as it had been before. And so it happened that in the Islamic world, too, uh, political liberalization and democratization and civil society became the dominant themes uh, of political uh, discourse in the 1990s. Second trend, this accelerating IT-led globalization really fit into and gave urgency to this new democratic, this new discourse about democracy, about liberalization, uh, and about civil society. Because IT-led globalization tended to leave the old Islamic heartland area, and especially its Republican nationalist regimes, high and dry when it came to economic partnership with the engines of the global economy. The third world debt crisis that broke out in 1982 led, housed in Washington, the World Bank and the uh, uh, International Monetary Fund. And the main components of this new package were liberalization, deregulation, elimination of government subsidies, privatization, open international trade, and export-led growth rather than uh, import substitution industrialization. The 1990s, that was in the, already in the 80s. In the 1990s, experience has taught us that we should put a new stress on institutionalization, uh, on rule of law, on laws and regulations which guarantee and consolidate openness and transparency in the economy. And the emergence of this new consensus has put all the regimes, almost all the regimes of the Middle East and North Africa, from whence the trouble cometh, uh, at a huge new disadvantage. And the reason is that almost all of them, republics and monarchies alike, use the state to allocate and distribute economic rents in order to maintain the extensive patronage networks that keep them in power. So the, the state-led economies have, first of all, a political importance in maintaining those patronage networks. And none of these states are interested primarily in economic growth. All of them are information shy. All of them are structurally for limited transparency, limited openness, uh, <coughs> uh, because of their power base. Two-thirds of the you know, exports are supposed to lead things, right, uh, in the new consensus. Two-thirds of this Islamic core area's 
total exports are in mineral fuels. And since 1983, OPEC has been unable to control the oil price because it can't control its member states' production. So between 1981 and 1998, oil revenues in the Arab OPEC countries and Iran fell from 250 billion a year to 110 billion a year. 250 down to 110. There was also volatility. Saudi Arabia in the single year from 1997 to 1998, uh, its, its uh, oil revenues fell by half and its total revenues fell by 31%. And there's no real halt to the price slide uh, in sight. Another element, with economic policy attention now shifting to the private sector and the Cold War over, most forms of official assistance, foreign aid, uh, also shriveled away in the 1990s. In 1977, this area got 30% uh, of world development assistance. By 1990, that was down to 7%. By 1997, down 17%. By 1997, down to 9%. And it was, it was a shrinking pie. And finally, the new private flows, the flows of uh, foreign direct investment, FDI, uh, which uh, economies were counting on to replace dwindling foreign aid, uh, have also passed the region by. If you exclude Turkey, which still attracts FDI, uh, the region's share of FDI to all developing countries fell from 11.6% in 1990 to 3.3% in 1997, to 4.3% in 1998. No one any longer cares. Meanwhile, the other socioeconomic uh, features that we've described for the area have remained in place. Population continues to explode. Turkey, Egypt, and Iran have all uh, approached or passed the 70 million mark. The population of Iran has doubled from 35 million to 70 million since the revolution in 21 years. All these populations are now heavily urban, and they, all, and they have majorities now under 20. Not 25, but under 20. Unemployment in the whole region averages 15%. In some places, some of the worst places, Algeria, uh, it's half the labor force. Unemployment, half the labor force. State sectors, you know, no longer the flavor of the month in economic policy, they remain huge. In Egypt, total government employment accounts for about a third of the labor force. The Egyptian state employs more than half of all workers with post-secondary education. In Iran, the state and these foundations, the, these clergy-run foundations, bonyads, uh, together control four-fifths of the economy, four-fifths of the economy. They employ about a fifth of the labor force. Uh, they handle about three-quarters of all imports. In Saudi Arabia, it's the royal family that collects and distributes the national revenue to its allied uh, commercial families from the Naj, the, 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 heart, the, the Saudi heartland, and to itself. Saudi Arabia, 1999, got seven billion dollars in uh, windfall oil profits. Of that, four billion disappeared into the royal family. Uh, 
but uh, it's, it's not just the Saudis. Regime after regime faces the task of staying in power with declining resources. And since their economies do not attract outside investors, there are very few alternative resources waiting in the wings. So there's a squeeze underway throughout the area. What have the responses been? Well, the responses have gone across the gamut. But the main response has been a series of tentative and partial attempts at adaptation to this new kind of globalization, to the new conditions created by it. Actually, uh, for those of you who can remember back two lectures, uh, it resembles the sort of defensive modernization of the 19th century, sort of Ottoman or the Egyptians under Muhammad Ali. And it has the same partial and contradictory effects because reformers try to reform individual sectors, not the whole economy, just individual sectors. So instead of getting the synergy that you get from broad-scale reform, you create tensions among sectors, uh, which uh, can slow you down, uh, or actually uh, gridlock. In politics, however, participation has opened up. It's continued to open up. After the Gulf War, even the Saudis tried a consultative council. I think it's sort of trickled off into the sands there, but even they tried it uh, in the 90s. Uh, reform oozes and flows as the fear of the political consequences clutches a regime by the throat. I mean, it starts something and then pulls back. We saw how the Algerian regime canceled the electoral process uh, as Islamists were on the verge of winning national majorities. Uh, since President Khatmi was elected president in Iran in 1997, the, the country has really been in a state of political Brownian movement. You know, lots of movement, 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 not going in any clear uh, direction. In Turkey, the next year, 1998, the military forced out uh, the first Islamist prime minister and banned his Rifah or welfare party. And in King Hussein's last years in Jordan and Mubarak's Egypt, the late 1990s witnessed deliberalization uh, rather than an expansion of reform. So back and forth, uh, unclear overall direction. But now that everything is ostensibly Islamic again, everybody, if everybody's Islamic, in some places, you, new elements of a new kind of synthesis are actually emerging. Not only are Islamists participating in governments, formally or de facto, sometimes they, they, they're not legalized, they can't go under their name, they participate in other coalitions, uh, but they're slowly building the financial bases that they need to participate with confidence and responsibility. Uh, one of the reasons Turkey has worked, for instance, is that those bases have always been there. there there's always been small and medium capitalists in the Anatolian heartland who are, remain culturally Islamic uh, and who resent the favors that the state gives to its crony big capitalists. Uh, but now it's growing in other countries as well. So-called Islamic finance, which seems so bizarre to most of us because it tries to do without interest, it tries to work out sort of profit sharing and equity sharing uh, forms of economic activity, uh, is spreading. It accounts for 5% of deposits in Egypt, for instance, even now, and could have much more 
did the Egyptian state not try to squeeze it down? The Egyptian state even gets the Sheikh of El Azhar, the main university, to issue fatwas. Uh, he's a salaried employee of the Egyptian state. He issues fatwas against Islamic finance. And in Saudi Arabia, ostensibly Islamist as a state, Islamic finance is forbidden entirely because the royal family wants to control everything. It also turns out, though, that when it comes to economic policy, not only Rufah in Turkey, but the FIS, the Islamic Salvation Front in Algiers, and other Islamists are enthusiastic free marketeers. Now, their opponents claim that this is only because they're outside looking in. Their opponents claim that they're for the free market because uh, they want to uh, criticize those in power, and that when they come to power, they too are going to need uh, the, uh, the rents to maintain their networks, the networks that keep them in power, and they're going to want to use the state uh, to extract those rents. But it's also true that just because they focus on cultural identity rather than on political power, Islamists are often more or less indifferent to the, f the specific forms that the economy should take. Uh, they really have nothing against uh, a free market so long as economic identity can be preserved. Now, the Taliban, of course, were an extreme example during their time in Afghanistan. I mean, they, they were fixed on dress and ritual and appearance, and they couldn't have cared less about the economy except in terms of what it took to fight their war. Uh, but this same fine indifference to system uh, marks Islamists everywhere, and it could actually make them better stewards uh, of adjustment to IT-led globalization than the statist regimes that are currently in place. And ladies and gentlemen, I think the same holds for political systems. In the 1990s, many Islamists were also enthusiastic Democrats. Enthusiastic Democrats. That was true of Rifah and of the FIS, again, in Algeria. And, of course, here, too, their opponents, the sitting regimes in place, say that this is only to gain power. They're only democratic uh, in order to gain power and until they gain power. But it's also true that, as in economics, Islamists may well have fewer theoretical allergies uh, to democracy than many of the hard-shell Muslim Republicans that they oppose. Uh, with reference to the subcontinent, uh, Barbara Metcalf, Professor Barbara Metcalf of Davis, has speculated that Deobundi, the, the Deobundis are pretty indifferent to political and economic systems, and that this may have the effect, in practice, of making religion a matter of personal, private life. In other words, not of politics. Uh, personal, private life separate from politics, even if, for Deobundis, religion and politics are indivisible in theory, because that's the original 7th century ideal. But in practice, if all you care about is cultural identity, you're going to get uh, a definition of re religion focused on private life that leaves the political system more or less open. And that is happening elsewhere as well. And it could give us, uh, if it goes on, an Islamically legitimated version of the separation of sacred and profane, 
the separation of church and state, which many Westerners, some in this audience, I suspect, continue to insist is uniquely Western. Uniquely Western, a product of the Renaissance and Reformation, which Islam famously has never had. You can get an Islamic version of that separation. Furthermore, theory is now starting to follow practice in the Islamic world. In the Islamic discourse of the 1990s, the wind has been in the sails of those who are finding Islamic bases for democracy, for pluralism, and for civil society. Uh, just as in the 18th century, uh, if you remember, scholars proclaimed that every Muslim had the right and duty to exercise ijtihad. Remember our friend ijtihad? Uh, the, the rightful effort to interpret uh, uh, the Quran and, and the law in terms of new circumstances. Uh, that was an 18th century argument. Now in the 20th century, the Sudanese Islamist Hassan al-Turabi argues that every Muslim is an alim. Every Muslim is a religious scholar. Every Muslim is a part of the ummah and has the right and duty to interpret. The familiar Islamic concepts of consultation, of assent, of how leaders should be selected, of consensus, are now being given democratic content, democratic glosses. Figures like Hassan Hanafi, in Egypt, uh, Abdul Karim Sarouch in Iran, uh, Rashid Ganoushi in Tunisia, uh, they're permitted to publish, to speculate, and they're squeezed back down, they're restricted, they're repressed, and they're permitted to publish again. It's, a, it's an ooze and flow. It's back and forth. And they carry on, and they're having more and more resonance. Now, there are still going to be problems, still going to be problems. The dispersion of religious authority in Islam is going to remain a problem. And here I'll tell you a little war story. Uh, uh, in 1998, uh, I went into Afghanistan with the UN, our UN ambassador, Bill Richardson, and I, it was my job and pleasure to complain to a Taliban leader, I think he was an acting vice premier, but Mullah Rabbani, uh, about Osama bin Laden's fatwa in February of that year, making it a religious duty to kill Americans. And Mullah Rabbani looked at me and said, well, you know, Osama bin Laden isn't a scholar. He doesn't have authority to issue fatwas. And that was enough of an answer for him. And I pointed out that uh, nevertheless he had issued this damn fatwa. Uh, and on the basis of that fatwa, you know, Americans could be killed. But he didn't care, because in principle, Osama bin Laden couldn't issue fatwas uh, at all. So there's going to continue to be a problem, because this dispersion of religious authority is going to keep tempting states uh, to substitute for the cohesion that does not exist in the religion. And you're going to keep getting resistance from pious Muslims. And so the struggle is going to go on. But meanwhile, the radical Islamists of the 1970s, uh, th those guys, because they were guys, uh, that we learned to, uh, to know and I can't say love uh, in our youths, the devoted readers of Syed Qutb and Malana Maududi, the killers of Sadat. People like that are increasingly isolated and increasingly 
on the run. Osama and the veterans of the old Islamist wars that he gathered around him, the people they're recruiting, are of that breed. But in the end, they could find no place in settled Muslim societies. Osama was driven to Sudan. He was deprived of his Saudi passport. Uh, and then he was driven from Sudan to ruined Afghanistan, a country that had been ruined by 23 years uh, of, of war and civil war. There he was protected by this peculiar Taliban uh, regime, uh, this extremist, a different brand of Islamism, but still uh, extreme. And that meant that he was doubly protected because there were enough Islamists within the Pakistani state to protect the Taliban. So Osama had a double layer of protection in a ruined country. Now, Islamists like that are going to continue to reproduce because the conditions uh, that uh, gave that kind of Islamism life are still there. Uh, they are turning, in fact, to what has been baptized as neo-fundamentalism, not just good old fundamentalism, uh, but neo-fundamentalism. And this means they are increasingly high-tech, they are increasingly global, they are increasingly divorced from any interest in or loyalty to uh, any state. Uh, they exist only for themselves. They are self-referential, uh, and, uh, and they exist for themselves and for that radical dream of recreating the Islamic 7th century. Uh, defining everything in terms of religion, they attack not only Shia, most of these people are Sunni, uh, but now Jews and Christians as well. It was such people who made Danny Pearl tell the camera that his mother was a Jew, that his father was a Jew, that he was a Jew. And uh, I am satisfied that it was such people who gunned down the Shia doctors in Karachi last week and who attacked Christians in Islamabad uh, yesterday, killing two uh, Americans. These people constantly expand and elevate their targets. Osama started off as an enemy of the Soviet presence, the infidel Soviet presence in Afghanistan. He then became an enemy of the infidel American presence in his native Saudi Arabia after the world, after the Gulf War. And then he discovered, only then and over the years as the shadow of the Twin Towers started to loom, uh, then he discovered the starving children of Iraq, uh, the martyred women of Palestine. But that isn't where he started. He's just been spreading. And that kind of spread, ladies and gentlemen, I would argue, is not a sign of confidence. It's a sign of desperation. Because there are fewer and fewer people out there like Osama. Before the Twin Towers, uh, the number of world terrorist incidents, not, in other words, not just Islamic world, uh, but including the Islamic world, had been uh, on a declining trend for years. Uh, uh, from a record 484 uh, in 1991 to 298 in 1995. I just want to give you sort of orders of magnitude. Uh, I'm not going to test you on these numbers. Uh, and then it, there was an uptick at the end of the decade, uh, 392 in 99, 423 in 2000. But CIA figures showed the deaths from terrorism, and again, worldwide. And uh, uh, most of these incidents are Colombia and Kashmir. I mean, they're you know, it isn't even the old Islamic heartlands. 
uh, deaths from terrorism were down from 4,833 in the decade of the 80s to 2,587 in the 90s. Now, this, our decade, this decade, will, of course, start high after September 11. But except for the attack on the tourists in Luxor in 1997, uh, Egypt has not faced a major terrorist incident uh, for the past half decade. Now, Islamist killers are still out there. We got to Islamabad in uh, January 1996. The previous month, December, the Egyptian embassy down the street from us was blown up. Uh, suicide bombers uh, by an outfit called Gama Islamiyah, uh, Islamic Society, radical Egyptian outfit. But it's also true that Gama members are generally younger than their predecessors. They're drawn now from villages rather more than from cities. They're more radical. And they're also on the run. In other words, they struck in Islamabad because they could no longer, it was so hard to strike in Egypt itself. And the fighters for Osama, I would urge you to read these jihad files that are appearing now yesterday and today in the New York Times, the, the pathetic papers that have been picked up uh, in Afghanistan, uh, they have the same profile. Of the 39 recruits for this Harkat al-Mujahideen, it's a Kashmir-oriented outfit mainly recruited in Pakistan, the 39 recruits in one of the lists, all of them were unmarried, most of them were under 20, few had gone beyond secondary school. Knows how to make sweets was one uh, was one comment on one of them. Knows how to embroider, says another one. What are their rules called for them uh, to do? Cleanliness. Clean beds and tents once a week, their rules say. Do not leave compounds. No political discussions. No arguments. No drugs. Go to bed early. That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking, ladies and gentlemen. It is that that we're up against, mainly. People like that and others like them are going to continue to conspire. They're going to continue to work in the back rooms of overcrowded cities under the shadow of the police. They're going to wreak damage, and they're going to take lives. But there are fewer and fewer places where they can operate with the space and security that Osama had in Afghanistan. There is no other place in the world where they can have the double layer of protection, first Taliban and then the Pakistanis, that, like Matrushka dolls, that Osama had there. And there are a dwindling number of ruined places that can provide them with even a single layer of protection. Maybe the southern Philippines, maybe northern Sumatra, maybe Somalia, maybe Yemen. And those are all places within easy reach of American power. Now, of course, military power is not going to be enough. I think we all know that. I think we know, I think the American public and increasingly the American government knows that we're going to have to deal with the conditions that produce such people uh, as well as with the people themselves. For that, we're going to need to mobilize resources we're going to need to understand the real nature of the challenges. We're going to need the political will to apply resources to those challenges 
on a sustained basis. 9-11 sparked a new debate in this country uh, about American resources and American responsibilities in world affairs. I think that's a healthy debate. I think it, it needs to be kept up, kept alive, uh, and I think it needs to move in the right direction. I think understanding is very key. And if these lectures have helped you as citizens to delineate the challenges for yourself, to understand how specific and real they are, but also how limited they are, uh, I think I will be happy. But livable outcomes uh, to what we're living through uh, are not going to depend only or even mainly uh, on Americans. They're going to depend mainly on Muslims. Muslims now number over a billion people uh, on our common planet. They're about a sixth uh, or a fifth of our common humanity. As I said at the beginning, their religion and their experience give them almost the full spectrum of the possibilities of which humanity is capable. Uh, in these lectures, I think we've seen something of the enormity of the Islamic accomplishment of the creativity and goodwill of Muslims. Today's challenges to our Muslim brothers and sisters and their children are very great. Their economies, their societies, their polities are under huge structural pressures from IT-led globalization in post-Cold War circumstances. But the opportunities are also very great as well. And I think, I hope that these lectures will have helped you identify them. It may now be possible to break free at last from the truncations and prevarications that were forced on Muslims and that were invented by Muslims in conditions of Western encroachment and domination. It may now be possible at last to break the linkage of modernity with Western domination, to associate everything modern with subordination to the West, which has afflicted the Islamic world for nearly two centuries now. It may now be possible at last for Muslims to shape for themselves a modernity that is consonant with Islamic belief and with Islamic authenticity. It may now be possible at last for countries besides Iran to give the nation state the kind of Islamic legitimacy that it has always had trouble developing. And with that kind of legitimacy, I believe, the nation state can give Muslims the vehicle for prosperity and personal freedom and identity that it once was in the West and can still be for much of the rest of the world. Islam gives Muslims fully sufficient resources for new and more successful syntheses of what is modern and what is theirs. There is nothing inevitable about those syntheses. They may not come into being. And the effort to reach them will certainly be punctuated by catastrophes, even without the special incubus of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But I am convinced that such syntheses between what is modern, syntheses of what is modern and what is Islamic, uh, are possible and achievable. And surely it is the Americans, the Americans who are still the Western world's most religious people, who are citizens of a nation that was founded on values 
and that is necessarily held together by values. Surely it is the Americans who are in the best position to understand and to support the efforts of Muslims to fashion for themselves and for us new and better lives in this new phase of our life together on earth. Thank you very much. I can still take some questions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I mean I've said I don't think catastrophes can be sorry. Uh, the question is that the trends that the positive trends that I have described and outlined are slow. And the political military situation is moving very fast and very dangerously. And you may have culminations, uh, crises, and catastrophes uh, before these positive trends can take hold. I think that's true. I mean, I said I don't think you can you can avoid catastrophes uh, uh, even outside uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. But I think, uh, if I may sound a little Marxist-Leninist, I think history is on my side. Uh, I think that these trends uh, are broader and have with them uh, uh, technology, uh, and the, the, as I've tried to uh, suggest and define uh, the linkages, uh, rather more uh, than these uh, Republican nationalist uh, states, uh, which are at the heart uh, of the problem. I mean, Iraq, uh, Syria to some extent, uh, Egypt to some extent, Algeria. They have different capacities in terms of of, of adjustment. Uh, Iraq uh, and, and Syria uh, have among the most limited capacities because they have really hunkered down not just on military and police, uh, but on <laughs> asabiya. I mean, the most uh, classic redoubt of Islamic government uh, is sort of government by families, and they, they kind of represent minorities uh, in their country. So I think history is going to be on my side rather than theirs. Now that doesn't mean that you, you know, that you're, you, you're not going to get blow-ups. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, well, I don't want to say be of good cheer because that sounds like sunny old Uncle Tom uh, uh, up here, you know, too much the diplomat. Uh, but I, I still think, and I've tried to make the argument as to why I think uh, history will bear me out.
I have a feeling that you didn't listen to me <laughs> for an hour and ten minutes. Uh, yeah, the question is that that uh, during the 60s and 70s, the, the, the Civil War I described, there was no political alternative in most of these countries, Iran, but also the, the Republican regimes to the Islamist route because other kinds of political opposition uh, uh, were not tolerated. I mean, it was the only place for young people to go. And the same condition pertains today. Why should I think that uh, Osama is dwindling? Well, I've given you three or four uh, reasons. One of them is that Western support of these regimes uh, is going down politically since the fall of, since the end of the Cold War, and economically since the emergence of the Washington uh, Consensus, you know, which calls for uh, development led by the private sector, and therefore no more official aid. So those two elements. Second, the regimes themselves have been opening up. I described ways in which that was happening. Uh, Islamizing themselves and allowing Islamists in. I described that as a long and complex negotiation. Uh, and finally, the, the places for people like Osama to operate uh, are shutting down. Afghanistan was unique. In other words, pe people will continue to be produced. People of this kind will continue to be produced, but they're likely to become fewer and fewer. The evidence is that they are becoming fewer and fewer, and that they have fewer and fewer places to operate. And therefore, uh, uh, th that explains, uh, in a nutshell, uh, that re recapitulates, in a nutshell, what I said in an hour and 10 minutes uh, as to why I think uh, that history is not on their side. Yeah, it's, it's because I think, yeah, sorry, how do you think the, the, the modern Islamists will be able to support themselves as responsible and moderate participants in a political process? I mean, I, I mentioned that. I mentioned Turkey as, as a place where that has been going on. I mentioned Islamic finance as possibly one route to that uh, in other countries. I think uh, that they will be able to do it for two reasons. First, even in current circumstances, the, you know, the enormous post-Cold War IT-led globalization squeeze that I talked about, it is possible for them to, uh, uh, to operate and establish a sort of financial bases uh, which will make them less dependent on uh, radical networks around the world. In other words, I think uh, Ireland is better off in the common market uh, with broad-based prosperity, uh, which makes it less necessary to fund uh, Irish nationalists out of Norade in North America. Uh, and I, I think it has uh, moderated politics in Ireland. I think you can do the same, you can get versions of that same thing within Islam. The second reason is that it seems to me that uh, democracy and the free market are, are the best avenues available out of this horrible squeeze uh, I told you about. In other words, the, and that Islamists are at least as capable as, as the hard shell uh, regimes in power of introducing democracy and the market. And, and that, that is, those are the best triggers for a broad-based economic growth 
which will make it less necessary to depend on the state to extract rents and support political networks. Those two reasons. The question is, I've described a record of failure, uh, failure in politics, failure in economics, failure in society, failure in population. Um, and is there any hope? I mean, with the widening rift of, of this part of the world with the West, I mean, I would like to think that uh, I had uh, described a record uh, of substantial progress, which creates new problems uh, uh, in the course of these four lectures. Uh, you know, not uh, nirvana, not uh, perfect success, major problems, major challenges, but also some success uh, in adjusting to them, specific uh, success and specific failure, which I, I tried to conclude uh, places the Islamic world uh, on the verge of, of moving. Uh, first of all, I don't think the gap has been reduced. I mean, I don't think the gap has widened between the Islamic world uh, and the West, I think it is actually narrowed. I mean, I have described uh, uh, the adoption of the Islamic and the problems associated with uh, the Islamic world's becoming modern since the 18th century, uh, the truncations and prevarications uh, involved in that process, but uh, their success, uh, I think, in recent decades uh, in building the bases for a more authentic Islamic modernity. And I don't see a widening gap. In fact, I see a narrowing gap. But as Stalin said in 1931 uh, in his interview with Emil Ludwig, uh, as, uh, as victory in the class war approaches, the class enemy fights ever more desperately uh, in order to uh, prevent it from happening. Uh, and I think these uh, Islamist radicals are losing traction. I think they're losing support. I think they're becoming more desperate, uh, more vicious, but not because the gap is widening, but because the gap is narrowing. And so uh, I think you have to uh, think a little bit dialectically, which does not come uh, naturally, I recognize, to most Americans. It helps to have spent so much of your life in, under the Marxist-Leninist regimes, uh, uh, as I have. Uh, to get there, but a little dialectics goes a long way, I think, in, in avoiding despair and in giving yourself realistic bases uh, for hope that Islam and the rest of us are uh, moving, if they're not moving in the right direction, because there's nothing inevitable about movement in the right direction, uh, at least have, the, have realistic possibilities for doing so. Um, uh, I think it's mixed. I think it's mixed. I think uh, this administration, like the last one, uh, has become increasingly conscious of, of Islam as a major and, and permanent factor uh, in international politics, I mean, in the basic landscape 
with which the United States is dealing, uh, positive and negative. In other words, a, a much more sophisticated uh, kind of view. Uh, I think that's helped by the fact that Islam is the largest, uh, uh, fastest growing uh, community in American society and therefore in American politics. The only incumbent to lose a Senate race uh, last time around was a senator from South Dakota, Larry Pressler, who was brought down by Pakistani Americans active uh, in our politics. So I think in terms of Islam as such, I think American administrations are becoming uh, more sophisticated and aware. Now in terms of the policy, uh, there that's harder. You get other hang-ups. I think uh, uh, the administration paradoxically, I mean a little bit like the Clinton administration, would have preferred to be domestic. Uh, and the Clinton administration was pulled slowly uh, back toward greater and greater engagement in world affairs. Uh, and I think uh, the Bush administration, of course, is pulled radically back by 9-11 uh, into the world. I think they've done rather well uh, in terms of Islam and in terms of fighting the war. In other words, I think the war has been well conducted, uh, including the politics uh, so far of the war. My fear is that they're a little greedy with success, dizzy with success, as Stalin also said, uh, in the middle of the collectivization drive. Uh, and they are, uh, they are lunging, uh, well, I think two things are happening. I think they're spending more attention uh, looking to the electoral cycle here, you know, starting to look at 2004 uh, uh, in terms of the, 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 their own base, I mean the conservative uh, base of the Republican Party, uh, and in terms of kind of unfinished business like Iraq. Uh, so I'm afraid that they're, you know, leaning uh, uh, irresponsibly, I mean, and, and domesticizing. In other words, the same kind of thing that Clinton was accused of is also happening to Bush, which I think ought to indicate to all of us that these are permanent tendencies in American politics, regardless of, of uh, or tensions in American politics, regardless of party. I think probably the world itself and the realities of the political system uh, will bring them back out of those dangerous leans. I mean, I see today that, you know, Vice President Cheney sets out uh, on, a, on a, a crusade, well, we don't use that word anymore, <laughs> but uh, sets, out, uh, sets out on a mission uh, to mobilize uh, our uh, friends in the Islamic world against Saddam Hussein uh, and discovers that you can do diddly squat unless you do something on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think we're learning that, and I think, uh, you know, I, th I think the learning curve can appear uh, in place after place. So I'm not particularly worried, but, you know, eternal vigilance is the prize of, price of liberty. Okay, one more question. Yeah. My experience of 35 years in government tells me that in order to answer a question like that, you have to be inside the government rather than outside. I just don't know the answer to it. And uh, I don't want to speculate on it. I think it, 
I think it would be a mistake. Maybe one more question. I think you have the full gamut of possibility. I mean, I, uh, I, I, sorry. Uh, what uh, what prospect do I see for the position of women uh, in Islamic societies as they modernize? I think it's hard to answer that question as well. Uh, I think for two reasons. Uh, one of them, which I uh, developed for myself in Pakistan, uh, and I'll share both of them with you. Uh, and the other of which I came up with in the course of the lectures and, and preparing these lectures and shared with you today. Uh, Pakistan is a country that's very hard on women. In other words, it's not, it's not an Islamist country, but women have a very hard time. There are more dowry burnings, more kitchen fires, I mean, more, uh, more pressure for conformity in dress. Uh, and people say it's just, you know, Zial, since Zial Huck. I think it may have something to do, though, with the tensions of modernization. And the analogy I developed for myself was Jim Crow. Um, in, in the American South in the 1890s, uh, the situation of blacks uh, actually got worse. I mean, lynching started uh, in the 1890s and 1900s uh, uh, much more than under slavery or in the immediate post-emancipation period. And the reason was that the South was modernizing uh, sort of badly and you were getting us into a situation where blacks and whites were in competition, uh, economic competition for jobs, and the only thing that a poor white ha had that gave him dignity and status compared to a poor black was race. And it was at that point that you got race injected by the power structure into the political system in order to separate poor blacks and poor whites. That was in the populist movement. Something of the same sort seemed to me was happening in Pakistan. In other words, it was not because Pakistan was so traditional, but precisely because Pakistan was changing and modernizing that you got these kinds of tensions. That's one reason. And that, that will depend. So the situation is that you can get a better situation for women in traditional societies or in post-revolutionary societies. In other words, there are many more uh, public roles for women in Iran today than there are in Pakistan. Uh, so you get those kinds of paradoxes. Second, as I, try, as I pointed out in the lecture today, the trend over the last 20 or 30 years, this trend away from politics toward community action and away from the struggle for power toward uh, affirmation of cultural identity leads to a new emphasis on this orthopraxis, on correct uh, behavior, dress, ritual, and that will also put more pressure on women. And I think I think that that is something that's likely to happen. Now, conversely, however, I think that you know, as uh, as modernization, as development increases, I think uh, paradoxically it may help to be a little more Islamic, because people are then a little more relaxed about women's roles, because it doesn't become such a lightning rod uh, for defense against Western cultural hegemony. Uh, I think you have almost the full range of possibilities. Uh, uh, for women's roles uh, in Islam, I mean, short of the short of the kind of re revolution that we've uh, we've had uh, in, in the West over the last uh, 50 or 60 years, but a lot of possibilities, uh, a lot of better life. Uh, it will still be constrained in terms of Western standards, 
but I think that ought to be okay uh, with us as long uh, as women can be uh, sort of free and proud and have uh, choices of a variety of roles, uh, and I think they can in Islam. Thank you very much. Simons once again for four beautifully designed and stimulating lectures uh, meant to improve our dialectical capabilities. Thank you all. <laughs>